Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we will continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We will pick up where we left off last week, which has us in verses 22 and 23. I will go ahead and read verses 18 to 25 uh, for context. Now, given the verses we will talk about this evening, our principal subject matter will be about the crucifixion. In point of fact, I'm going to get into the details of the crucifixion, because if we are going to appreciate why Paul preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews, we ought to get into the crucifixion, right? Because it is to get into the details of the crucifixion that we can begin to even appreciate all the more what St. Paul is talking about there. Now, all that being said, I did want to touch ever so briefly, to a question I received this morning that is tied to the Super Bowl yesterday. And the question was pretty straightforward. Joe, what a game. (laughs) Yes, it was a remarkable game. Do you think this game has to do with our faith in any way? Now, that question is pretty generic in that, yeah, I mean, you can take any aspect of any competitive game and speak to the faith with that, right? Now, what's interesting is last night's game, in the light of a message that was sent from Pope Francis, and his message was about how just not football, but sport in general can teach us about what? Sacrifice. Fidelity. Why fidelity? Well, fidelity to one another, to overcome obstacles, to overcome challenges. This is what Pope Francis was all about, and the whole concept of team coming together to overcome those obstacles and challenges. And As I was looking at the question this morning and reflecting into the game last night, for those of you who did not watch the game last night, the New England Patriots came back from 25 points, making it the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Now, in the light of that, it really draws out what Pope Francis was saying. Why? Because to come back from 25 points down, what do you need to do? You need to overcome obstacles. You need to overcome challenges. You need to look into the eyes of one another and say, hey, can we do this? Can we mount this, this comeback? And of course they did. You know, ESPN has this tracker during the game that gives the probability of a team winning by percentage. And over 20 times throughout the first and second half, did it show the Atlanta Falcons having a 99% chance to win? What does that mean? Well, that means that the New England Patriots were not only down, they were down big. And yet they came back. And could we not speak to this within the context of faith? Because what Pope Francis was talking about is ultimately what came to fruition, huh? They had to come together as a team, essentially believing in one another, that we've been through this before, and we have faith in one another. We can overcome this obstacle. We can overcome this challenge. I think they were down by 25 points with 20 to 25 minutes to go in the game. They came back, and in the end, they won. And I would say that word fidelity, believing in one another, was very important. That whole idea of working together as a team to overcome obstacles, to overcome challenges. I mean, you think about it, 
at any one time, whether you're on offense or defense in football, you're going to have 11 players on the field. If one player misses their assignment, it's going to impact the whole team. And point of fact, if you were to go to last night's game, arguably the most important point in that whole game was deep into the game. The Falcons were up by two touchdowns with about eight and a half minutes to go. And a running back missed a blocking assignment. Well, the defender was able to run free and hit the quarterback. It caused a fumble. And that's really when the momentum changed. A running back missed his assignment. It wasn't about the quarterback and some great catch or some great throw. Sure, there were lots of those. But I would argue a missed blocking assignment by a running back was the tie turner. So the point to be had here, my friends, is quite simple. If we fail our assignment, if we fail to do the will of God, we are letting down the team, the team that is the body of Christ. So we have to step forward and understand that, yeah, sport in general can teach us so many things about faith. And when things go bad, when things get tough, we need to understand that we as individuals must step forward for the sake of the body of Christ, that we might unite under the one banner of Christ, and that when we do that, we will come out victorious. We know who wins, right? We know that Jesus Christ wins. We have to do everything possible to make sure that we are doing the will of God, that we are playing our part, that we are not missing our blocking assignment, so to speak. Brothers and sisters, we are either building up or breaking down. And we should be in the business of building up. So let us build one another up. And as a team, as a body of Christ, understand that we must work together to overcome the obstacle, to to overcome the challenge. Amen? Amen. Okay, with that, let us get into Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And again, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And here it is, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. Mm, mm, Now, last week, as we were wrapping up our reflections on some of these verses, I was talking about the importance of the word wisdom. And in that vein, I want to go back to Paul's letter to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 22, to gain more insight into this discussion on wisdom and ultimately how that leads us to why the crucifixion is a stumbling block. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. 
For what can be known about God is evident to them, because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes and eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse, for although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> sin darkens the intellect. This is what Paul wants us to see and ultimately renders the heart void of seeing what God wants us to see. So since plan A failed because of sin, it was the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who have faith. Here, we ought to turn to St. Thomas Aquinas in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he has to say here. Because of the vanity of man's heart, man went astray from the right path of knowing God. And therefore, God led the faithful to a saving knowledge of himself through certain other things that are not found in the patterns of creation. These other things are the facts of faith. God's manner of acting is therefore like that of a teacher who, realizing that his meaning is not being grasped by his hearers, strives to use other words to explain what he has in his heart. So in so many ways, my friends, the other way, plan B, if you will, is the way of what? Paradox. And remember, the word paradox comes from a Greek word that translates contrary to expectation, right? Contrary to expectation. What is God doing? Well, he flips something upside down to turn something right side up. The tendency of the Jews who opposed the ministry of Jesus and that of Paul was what? What did we just read? To demand signs. Was to demand miracles or spectacular deeds of power. And what did Greeks look for? Wisdom. Something that will captivate their mind, their cultural mind. So God does otherwise, right? And, and Paul was one who was not only versed to speak to the Jews, but he was also a great philosopher. He understood also how to speak to the Greeks. And so this is what he does. But he does so by proclaiming something that goes counter to expectation, right? Because it goes beyond expectation. The natural tastes of each, both the Jew and the Greek, Christ crucified. Jews indeed were looking for a Messiah, but the fact that Jesus died on the cross proved that he was not the glorious liberator they desired or they were looking for. For them, indeed, the cross was a stumbling block, an obstacle of faith. Why? Because, my friends, Roman crucifixion was normally a sign of disgrace Roman crucifixion was normally a sign of defeat for its victims. And why? Well, <laughs> consider, my friends, what the crucifixion was all about. And to get into this, certainly it would be most appropriate to first get into the scourging or the flogging. What was the scourging? What was the flogging? Well, 
Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. What was used during a flogging, a scourging? The usual instrument to a flogging was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. And in some cases, when you read into the floggings of Roman antiquity, you also find shards of glass would replace sheep bones. So any one flogging was going to entail incredible pain and suffering. Man would be stripped of his clothing, and his hands would be tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and legs would be flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. What was the intent? Well, to weaken the victim, right? To weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. So as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would what? But tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce incredible pain and incredible bleeding as well. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for, as medical officials would speak to it, uh, 2,000 years later, circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss often would have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross, the subsequent crucifixion. How about the crucifixion? Now, although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they certainly perfected it, we could say, as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and, and maximum suffering. It was arguably the most disgraceful and cruel way of dying. It was the Romans' most extreme way of killing. Now, what could we say of one who was to undergo crucifixion? Well, he was usually naked, and since the weight of the entire cross was probably well over 300 pounds, only the crossbar was carried. Usually, the outstretched arms then would be tied to the crossbar. The nails would not have been yet put into his wrists. Now, the processional site to the crucifixion was led by a complete Roman military guard headed by a centurion. One of the soldiers would carry a sign on which the condemned man's name and crime would be displayed. Later, the sign would be attached to the top of the cross. And of course, this is what we see in the case of Christ. The Roman guard would not leave the victim until they were sure of his death. And certainly this is another point that would play out in our Lord's crucifixion. Outside the city walls was permanently located the heavy upright wooden post on which the crossbar would be secured. Now, to prolong the crucifixion process, a horizontal wooden block or plank serving as a kind of crude seat often was attached midway down the post. At the site of execution by law, the victim was given 
a bitter drink of wine mixed with myrrh as a mild pain reliever. The criminal was then thrown to the ground on his back with his arms outstretched along the crossbar. The hands could then be nailed or tied to the crossbar. What about the nails? Well, the nails were tapered iron spikes, approximately five to seven inches long with a square shaft about three-eighths of an inch across. Now, these nails were not necessarily driven to the palms, but driven to the wrists. Otherwise, the body could not hang properly, right? So after both arms were fixed to the crossbar, the crossbar and the victim together were lifted onto the post. Next, the feet were fixed to the cross, either by nails or ropes. Nailing again was the preferred Roman practice. Although the feet could be fixed to the sides of the post or to a wooden footrest, they usually were nailed directly to the front of the post. Again, this is something that would have happened with Christ. Now, how do you do this? Well, to accomplish this, flexion of the knees may have been quite prominent. And so the bent legs may have been rotated outward. There are so many details to the crucifixion that once you get underneath them, you see the kind of pain and agony that I think, unfortunately, has been lost when we reflect upon the crucifix. Knowing the details helps us to better reflect upon the crucifix. So when the nailing was completed, the sign would then be attached to the cross by nails or cords just above the victim's head. Historically, the soldiers in the civilian crowd often taunted and jeered the condemned man, and the soldiers customarily divided up his clothes among themselves. Now, in some cases, there were things coming out of the man's mouth that were so over the top that the Roman soldiers actually had to cut out their tongue. Now, what else here could we speak to? Well, how about the length of survival? The length of survival generally ranged from three or four hours to three or four days, and it appears to have been inversely related to the severity of the scourging. I made the point earlier that given the extremity of the flogging would have probably determined how long the man would have lived. However, even if the scourging had been relatively mild, the Roman soldiers could easily hasten death by breaking the legs uh, below the knees. Now, what would not be uncommon is to find insects burrowing into the open wounds or the eyes, ears, and nose of the dying and helpless victim. Uh, birds of prey would tear at these sites. What's more, we find in history that it was customary to leave the corpses on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. However, by Roman law, the family of the condemned could take the body for burial after obtaining permission from the Roman judge. Now, with a knowledge of both anatomy and ancient crucifixion practices, one may reconstruct, as many medical officials have, the probable medical aspects of this form of slow execution. First of all, each wound apparently was intended to produce intense agony. When the victim was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for transfixion of his hands, his scourging wounds most likely would become torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Something so small, something so simple, yet something relevant to the pain and agony of the crucifixion. Furthermore, with each respiration, what would have taken place? But the painful scourging wounds would be scraped against the rough wood of the post 
And as a result, blood loss from the back probably would continue throughout the crucifixion ordeal. It has been shown the iron spikes probably were driven between the radius, the heavier of the two forearm bones and the carpals, the eight wrist bones. Another probability for placement of the spikes could be between the row of carpal bones nearest the radius or through the strong fibrous band-like tissue that covers the carpals, which forms a tunnel for the various fibrous brands connecting the eight carpal bones. So the nail driven at this location would crush or sever the rather large median nerve. And certainly the damaged nerve would also produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. And again, my friends, as we talk about this, we talk about this within the context of what Jesus endured. What's more, it is likely that the deep peroneal nerve extending to the front of the ankle and branches of the medial and lateral plantar nerves would have been injured by the nails driven through the feet. Now, another piece that is often talked about is the crucial effect of the crucifixion. Beyond the excruciating pain was the marked interference with normal respiration, right? And this is exhalation. I mean, think about this, my friends. The weight of the body pulling down on the outstretched arms and shoulders would tend to do what but fix the chest muscles used for breathing in an, in an inhalation state and thereby hinder passive exhalation. Accordingly, exhalation would require using the abdominal muscles rather than the chest muscles, and breathing would be shallow. It is likely that this form of respiration would not suffice and that a high level of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream would soon result. The onset of muscle cramps or muscle contractions due to fatigue and the high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood would certainly hinder respiration even further. What's more, my friends, in this context, adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows and pulling the shoulders inward. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the bones and the feet and would produce a kind of searing pain. Furthermore, flexion or uh, bending of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. Then the lifting of the body would also painfully scrape the scourged back against the rough wooden post. Muscle cramps and loss of feeling in both the outstretched and uplifted arms would have certainly added discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring, and of course, further reducing the oxygen levels in the blood and lead eventually to asphyxia. The actual cause of death by crucifixion would vary from case to case. But in talking about this now, my friends, it's about the agony and excruciating pain that he went to so as to understand why St. Paul preached Christ crucified and why it would have been a stumbling block to the Jews. And oh, by the way, consider the word excruciating. I never miss an opportunity to talk about this because I think it's just that important. 
The word excruciating comes from the Latin that literally translates either from the cross or out of the cross or out from the cross. So essentially, what comes from the cross was, well, what? Excruciating. And I find it so interesting that we choose the word excruciating when we are going through that most intense agony, that most intense pain, that most intense suffering. And we ought to consider here, my friends, the importance of that point. Why? Because it is when we unite our own suffering, pain, and agony to the cross that our crosses begin to make sense. St. John Paul II, in his letter on human suffering, I believe it was paragraphs 26 and 27, talked in great detail about the importance of seeing our agony, pain, and suffering as a personal vocation, one that no one else can understand necessarily because suffering itself is irrational, right? (laughs) And yet, it becomes this vocation where God slowly reveals the meaning of your pain, agony, and suffering. And be assured, my friends, He will. There's all sorts of suffering. There's all sorts of pain. There's all sorts of agony. Physical, psychological, emotional, relational. We are to take these to the cross and plead with Jesus. Help me understand. And over time, as St. John Paul II reminds us, He will. He will. So this, my friends, this truth of the cross Yes, it is a stumbling block. It is folly to the Jew. And one can understand that. Why? Because again, it was the most disgraceful death. I mean, think about everything we just talked about. That God became man to die on the cross. But yet this was what was necessary, right? To atone for the sin of Adam. And so in and through the cross, we are not only ransomed from sin, but we also have new life, huh? New life in the resurrection, new life, of course, in the hope of Jesus Christ. All right, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. (laughs) So we didn't get really beyond verse 23, but that's okay. We'll pick up here uh, tomorrow. Again, if you have any questions, comments, please don't hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Or you can go to joholcraft.org. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.